Welcome to the latest episode of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown Podcast, where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And in his second of what's currently three planned appearances, we have got Matt Piercy back, who we last heard when we discussed the Spider-Man clone saga. Welcome back, Matt. Hi, thanks for having me again. Oh, it's a pleasure. It was enjoyable last time. Might as well bring you back again. (laughs) And this time we are discussing story number 53 on the countdown, Avengers Disassembled. So this includes issues 500 to 503, as well as the Avengers finale one-shot. Now, issues 500 through 503 were written by Brian Michael Bendis, penciled by David Finch, inked by Danny Meeky, colored by Frank Darmada, lettered by Albert Deschain and Richard Starking's Comic Craft, and edited by assistant editors Nicole Wiley and Molly Laser, associate editor Andy Schmidt, editor Tom Brevoort, and editor-in-chief Joe Casada. Cover dates range from September 2004 to January 2005, release dates from July 28th, 2004 to November 3rd, 2004, and the art teams on the Avengers finale issue are far more involved than on the others. This is one of the first Brian Michael Bendis issues where they're pulling in a whole rotating team of artists as, well, we'll get into the plot details later, but every couple (laughs) of pages we've got a new art team. So we've got... Alex Maleev's digital art. We've got Steve Epting and Lee Weeks and Michael Gatos penciling and inking their own stuff with a variety of colorists. Eric Powell doing his pencils, inks, and colors start to finish. We've got Derek Robertson doing his pencils and inks. Mike Mayhew doing his. David Mack painting his. Gary Frank on pencils and inks. Mike Avon Oming on pencils and inks. Jim Chung and Steve McNiven and George Perez doing their own pencils with inks by Mark Morales and Mike Perkins, and the colorists also included Brian Reber, Maury Hollowell, Andy Troy, Pete Padazis, and Justin Ponser. So it was quite the team of artists on that issue. Okay, so that covers the technical details. And the significance of this, the impact on the story, that's kind of tied to my personal history with it. So I was buying this as it came out. Were you doing the same, Matt? Or? Uh, yes. I, I want to say in between Johns and Bendis, I believe Chuck Austin did like a short run. And I, I think I may he have did. had some of those, but honestly, it was Chuck Austin. Uh, he kind of made me mad with his X-Men run, so I might have dropped off, but I definitely jumped back on for this. Yeah, I read Chuck Austin's run after the fact. This is actually where I first started collecting the Avengers, and I was collecting it because I was following Brian Michael Bendis over after being impressed by his work on Ultimate Spider-Man and Daredevil. So I started getting these by the issue. I did go back and reread all the issues prior to this on the DVD-ROM, and it was crystal clear that Chuck Austin was gearing up to relaunch, I believe it was The Invaders, in issue 500 of The Avengers, and instead that got dumped over into Invaders issue zero, while Brian Bendis got the 500th issue to kick off his run by essentially destroying The Avengers. Pretty much. (laughs) It's kind of where it all ends and where it all begins. Yeah, that's that's really the plot. At first, a couple little things start going wrong. Tony Stark starts acting like he's drunk in front of the UN, where he's speaking as Secretary of State, even though he's not drunk and hadn't had a drink in years. Yellow Jacket refuses to believe that, and the tempers get hot. Jack of Hearts returns from the dead, apparently for the sole purpose of killing the Scott Lang Ant-Man. We see all sorts of outside attackers coming in, Ultron taking over the Vision, She-Hulk hulking out and destroying the Vision, or at least tearing him apart. 
the Kree show up. It's like every villain the Avengers have ever faced comes to their door and several members die. And honestly, if you've ever had a small child tell you a story or retell you a story, that's almost how it feels reading this. It's like, oh, we're over here doing this, and then the Kree Scroll War happens again. Uh, we're doing this, a uh, robot attack. It's just every crazy thing you can think of all in one day. Yeah, I've actually heard it compared. I believe it was uh, someone in the rec.arts.marvel.universe news group. I wish I remember who posted it so I could attribute it properly. But he, to him, he said it felt like a, you know, an eight-year-old's fan fiction where, and then these guys show up, and then these guys show up, and then, and then, and then, and then, and it's all the and then. Oh, absolutely. Just whatever action figures they have, just throwing them all together. Yeah, it has some nice moments. We've got, you know, after the mansion is destroyed, I like having all the previous Avengers and Reserve Avengers appear in a show of solidarity, just showing up there saying, how can we help? Yes. Mm -hmm. That was a very nice touch. Some of the characters felt like they were out of character. And, you know, as the, the story develops, we realize there's outside influences that are forcing them to behave out of character. So it's not that Bendis didn't understand them. It's that, I mean, even he has said in retrospect, he would have liked to have taken over earlier to have some time to establish his credentials as an Avengers writer and build towards this and then have everything hit the fan. But when he had the opportunity to start with issue 500, he figured you got to start big. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I heard him say that on Word Balloon. And ever since then, I kind of regretted that Chuck Austin got the job at all. <laughs> had they gone right from Jeff Johns into Bendis and the still been the story that kicks off with issue 500. Now, are you familiar with Jeff Johns' run at all? Yeah, I have read everything from the uh, Heroes Return and Heroes Reborn. So that Kurt Busiek era... Yeah, the 13 issues prior to Kurt Busiek when they were outsourced. Mm -hmm. From there, right up until I'm actually a little bit behind on Hickman's run right now. But I've read every issue of the Avengers published from Heroes Reborn until about August 2014. And again, the GitCorp DVDs helped a lot with that. And if anyone's just picking up this for the first time and they see Jack of Hearts and an Ant-Man that they don't even recognize, well, until the movie comes out. That was a lot of Jeff Johns's run, was pairing those two against each other and then, you know, the big sacrifice with Jack of Hearts at the end. But if you're not familiar with that, I feel like it's kind of out of place. Like, it almost feels thrown in there with those two characters. But if you have read Johns's run, I mean, having those two at the beginning makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Reading it now, I understand the basis for it. Mm -hmm. But even though this was my Avengers jumping on point, it's not a great jumping on point. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. <laughs> yeah, if you're looking at a place to jump onto the Avengers, either start with the first issue of Kurt Busiek's run and read from there at least through the end of Jeff John's run before skipping ahead to this, or skip this story and pick up with New Avengers number one, also by Bendis, when he puts the team back together in the fallout of Avengers Disassembled. Those are both better starting points yes. than this is, I would say. <laughs> this is just kind of wiping the slate clean. Yeah, this is three issues of destruction killing a number of characters, including, well, Hawkeye is probably the most prominent of them today, even though he's come back from the dead since then. <laughs> but yeah, for a while after this, he was dead. So we have Scotling, Ant-Man, uh, Jack of Hearts, I guess you could say, again, the Vision, and Hawkeye. And then Scarlet Witch gets taken away at the end. When you were reading this, I mean, we all kind of know that characters come back, but was there a specific character that you were like, oh, I wish they hadn't killed him? For me... Not really. 
honestly the only character who died that I'd had any previous exposure to was the Scott Lang Ant-Man. Oh, really? Yeah, which is kind of an oddball one. If anyone were to come to me and said that they were only familiar with one of these characters, my immediate reaction would be, okay, was it Hawkeye or Vision? Mm-hmm. But I had a friend of mine in elementary school who had a reprint edition of the Scott Lang origin story, those, those particular issues, and I'd read that. And I did have the first issue of Jeff John's Avengers run, just because my, my local comic guy recommended I, I pick it up. He thought I would enjoy it. He was right. And he was right about that for a lot of people. When I went back for the next issue, it was sold out before I got there. So I never continued with the Jeff John's run beyond that first issue. So I'd seen these guys beyond that a little bit in that story. Yeah, that was it. So none of them really resonated with me. It just felt like, at this point, destruction for the sake of destruction, and then a betrayal within the team where you find out that the Scarlet Witch has snapped. Reading it now, I see, you know, it harkens directly back to the John Byrne run and West Coast Avengers and some of Wanda's history that I just was completely unfamiliar with at that point. This came out just after I got back into collecting comics. When I was first collecting, it was all about New Warriors and a couple of the X-Books. So coming into here, as far as I was concerned, the Avenger slate was pretty much clean. I'd have to check the publication dates to remember if I had read any of the essentials or not, because I was sort of picking up on those as well, Mm -hmm. as a way to familiarize myself with the core of the characters and why they're together, right? Because those essential volumes are really good for dirt cheap origin stories. Absolutely. If you can find those, get them, because they're not making any more. (laughs) No. No, unfortunately, that line is pretty much dead. So if there's any you're missing, start hunting today. <laughs> that's that's what this was. It This is what took the Scarlet Witch off the map and set the stage for House of M, which will be discussed in more detail later, because that has a higher ranking on this list, as does well a few of the other stories that are fallout from this. This is actually where Secret Invasion begins as well, although you have to be paying very close attention to notice that. Hmm. See, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, in in the course of this, all the Avengers show up, including Quicksilver. He's in the fight. Yes, for one panel. Yeah, for one panel. Well, I think he's actually in two or three panels. And in the background, we see Quicksilver getting hit. In the next panel, we see a scroll falling down. And this is during the Kree invasion where they're restaging the Kree scroll war. So you think, well, Quicksilver's just down. There's a different scroll there. And then in Avengers finale, we hear Quicksilver say, no, I wasn't here at all. That must have been Wanda's doing. That must have been part of the mojo she was working. But in fact, it was actually a Quicksilver scroll. Ah, you're opening my eyes here. <laughs> yeah, David Finch had no idea why he was drawing that scroll at this point. Brian Michael Bendis and Tom Brevoort were the only two people in the planet who knew that Secret Invasion was coming. Because I remembered when Quicksilver gave his explanation, and it, it seemed hinky. But I couldn't quite remember. It's been a while since I've read House of M, honestly. Probably since it came out was the last uh, last time I read it. And I couldn't remember how involved he was in House of M and controlling Wanda. So I thought maybe it tied into that. Yeah, well, it did tie into a future event. It was just the other one. <laughs> but again, more details on that one later. Yep. <laughs> yeah, because House of M comes in at number 26 and Secret Invasion comes in at number 20 in this countdown. So both of those conversations are coming in much more detail later. To me, I didn't find it all that entertaining, partly because I wasn't attached to the characters coming in, and that compulsion to tell that big story starting with issue 500 just didn't give me enough time to get attached to the characters, Mm -hmm. right? Because the stuff hits the fan about, what, page two, three, 
Yes. <laughs> we get a lot of Bindus dialogue uh, for a good three or four pages. Yeah, and that's it. Then everything blows up. And if you don't, like I said, if you don't already know who these characters are, it may not resonate the way it does if you do. Now, in the post-movie era that we're in, a lot of people know who these characters are. You might look at it going, why doesn't Thor look like Chris Hemsworth? Actually, Thor doesn't <laughs> appear in this, but you might wonder why Cap doesn't look quite so much like Chris Evans or Hawkeye like Jeremy Renner. And I used to like Hawkeye's costume, but over the years, like going back to this, I was like, oh, this is horrible looking. <laughs> yeah, Hawkeye's costume works best with Silver Age art. I think when mm -hmm. you have a realistic and detail-oriented artist like David Finch, it suffers. It's like how I know a lot of fans have complained that they changed the costumes of these superheroes for the movies, you know, like complaints about the Daredevil costume in 2003. But it's not hard to find photos of more comic faithful versions of that costume with Ben Affleck in them, and they look goofy. A lot of comic book costumes look goofy when they are exactly reproduced. Mm -hmm. Now, anyone who's been to a con can point to cosplayers who can pull it off, at least to some extent. But even the best cosplayers out there, the vast majority of them, you look at them, you see cosplayers. You know, if you had that same costume on screen, I wouldn't see the Scarlet Witch. I would see someone cosplaying the Scarlet Witch in these cosplay costumes because it's just as they appear on screen, I don't or on the page. I don't think they translate very well to the screen. Absolutely. The only one you can honestly do that with is Iron Man for, you know, obvious reasons. Yeah. Yeah. So some of these have, have transferred, as we kind of alluded to, the major impact of the story and the continuity significance is that this was a massive overhaul on the Avengers and started Bendis's rather lengthy run on the franchise. After the Avengers finale here where they're picking up the pieces in the wake and they're remembering their favorite moments in Avengers history when they think this is the end of the Avengers as a team, which is where the different rotating art teams come in. Each memory has its own art team. Then they picked up the pieces and brought in the new Avengers. And this is when Luke Cage and Spider-Man and Wolverine joined the team full time for the first time. And that fed into Civil War, into House of M, into Secret Invasion. For a long time, Bendis' Avengers books, both New Avengers and later Mighty Avengers following Civil War, were almost like the continuity spine of the Marvel Universe. If you wanted to follow any of the Marvel Universe events coming up, you had to be reading Bendis' Avengers, or his New Avengers, his Mighty Avengers, and the New Avengers Illuminati miniseries. Those were the key points for virtually every major event <laughs> for probably, what, six, seven years? If not longer. It felt like longer. <laughs> Did you like the finale and the memories, or did you think that was a little too much? I appreciate it more now than I did when it first came out, partly because now I've read the issues they're making reference to, so it's not just like the greatest hits thing. For me, that was the first impression I was going through. It was my first exposure to rotating art teams within a book in a single issue where you turn the page and there's a totally new art team on the same story. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever experienced that before. So that kind of threw me, and the fact that I didn't know any of these, it felt like okay, what's the point of the finale? We get three or four pages of what's happening with these characters and then a whole bunch of pages of memories. And I remember sitting there going, why did this need to be its own issue? Why didn't they just do an extra size 503 and have that epilogue with these characters talking to each other going, you know, with Tony Stark saying, sorry guys, I can't fund it right now. And Quicksilver saying, well, that wasn't me. That must've been some of Wanda's doing. And just those little conversations before they really get into the flashbacks. That was my gut instinct, was this could have just been a few more pages in the back of 503 instead of a standalone. And and this is something Bendis has done 
later on, he has this idea where, oh, we'll do the memory. Most of the time, it's memories. Uh, and he'll have an artist for each memory or, or telling that story. And it's it's really just about the art. And he kind of builds a story or tries to around that. I mean, it's beautiful art. I'll give it to him. But <laughs> did it need to happen? You know, probably not. Yeah, not strictly. But if you do like the art and if, you know, if you're one of the people who'd been collecting Avengers for decades and had this huge run, I could see this being a nice cap. I could see how you wouldn't want this to be the wrap up. If it's really meant to feel like the end of the Avengers, you would want this to be more than three or four pages in the back of 503. Mm -hmm. I, I see why you would want a full issue special. I didn't have that emotional attachment at the time. So I've got a greater appreciation for it now than I did during the original publication. So some of the other fallout that came from this wasn't directly related to Bendis. So in issue 500, there's we see a couple mouths of people whispering back and forth who appear to be behind the scenes and orchestrating it. It's not clear just from reading this issue, or at least it wasn't to me, but it was, again, hearing Bendis talk about it in the Word Berlin podcast. When this came out, I originally thought it was going to be Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch. Just, you know, as Matt was saying, when you get to House of M, you find out there's been some manipulation going on. Those two voices were actually intended to be the children of the Scarlet Witch and the Vision, the ones that she brought back into existence when her memories were jogged. I never would have guessed that. Even rereading it, I still thought it was Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch. Yeah, Bendis has, he said that it, it, you know, if he had to go back and do it all over again, he'd like to have a few more issues to build up to it, and he'd like to make that more clear. He felt it was a little too subtle and they didn't drop enough hints for people to pick up on that. But that was laying the groundwork for Heinberg and Chung's Young Avengers, where the children are now permanently in existence, and they keep going forward with Speed and Wicked. And that was really the two Avengers books that sprung out of this was new avengers and young avengers and both were were great yeah i am now that i think about it i'm actually quite surprised young avengers didn't make the countdown because i could think of a few books and stories that did that i would say were not as good well maybe that'll be on another podcast you know just throwing that out yeah so this story it did start laying the groundwork to, for some of the young avengers team and it also started laying the groundwork for you know, a new interpretation of the Scarlet Witch's powers when Doctor Strange stepped forward and said, there's no such thing as chaos magic. This is something else. And without that piece established, we wouldn't have House of M. So that piece is through Bendis. It also started to establish, you know, a little bit more of Doctor Strange and bring him back a little more to the forefront. So then we had Doctor Strange, The Oath by Brian K. Vaughn and Marcos Martin, which again, I would recommend to anyone with a passing interest in Doctor Strange. As we've kind of alluded to, aside from having well, the Scarlet Witch snaps, she creates the appearance of all the Avengers' ma major villains. So the Ultrons we see are not really Ultron. The Kree that we see are not really the Kree. It's the Scarlet Witch's reality manipulation powers running amok, which may be at least partly on a subconscious level. And as it ends, it reveals that it's, yeah, it's really the Scarlet Witch is unable to cope with the realization that, yeah, for a while there, she had kids. She lost them because she had created them with her powers. And her friends in Agatha Harkness had tried to remove or suppress those memories rather than allow her to deal with it. And when that came back, that was the tipping point that just drove her over the edge. Now, reading back, they mentioned Agatha Harkness, and I'm not too familiar with her. Uh, she was originally introduced during the Lee Kirby run on the Fantastic Four as a nanny for Franklin. Okay. So she was the, you know, the witch upstate, although for a while there, only the thing had any inkling that she was a witch. She just seemed to know things. He's the one that realized what was going on. 
Uh, but he was willing to yeah, let it ride it's, as far as he was concerned. That just made sure Franklin was more safe because he did trust her. And it was later established that as a witch herself, she's the one that trained the Scarlet Witch in the arts of witchcraft. So when the Scarlet Witch went beyond her hex power into actual magic, that was under the tutelage of Agatha Harkness. Okay. And she was always portrayed as a, a good guy? Or did yeah. she kind of go back and forth? At least the appearances I've read, she's always been on the side of good, but she is not blatantly so. She kind of likes people either thinking she's a doddering old woman with no powers, or if they realize that she has abilities, she likes to give the impression that she'll be very cutthroat and no holds barred, right? Your life is in jeopardy if she's coming after you kind of thing. So I've never seen her actually kill people, but she is very, very comfortable with terrifying them. <laughs> so she kind of plays up her own threat level a bit. So people honestly think there's no lines that she will never cross. But we see from the way she works it, she kind of manipulates it subtly so that the lines don't need to be crossed. And I believe her direct involvement with the Scarlet Witch, those are issues I haven't read. I've just read before and after when they make reference to it. So I've read her with Franklin. I haven't read her with the Scarlet Witch yet. I was doing a chronological Avengers read-through before I started reading for this podcast, which has taken up a lot of my reading time. You know, as you can imagine, with things like the Clone Saga and the Chris Claremont New Mutants, and oh, I, I'm so glad that this was just a few issues. I don't think I could have done it. And the next one is only one issue. That's perfect. Yeah, in, when I was going through the read through, I was about six months shy of the introduction to the West Coast Avengers when I had to sort of put that on pause to come over and do this. And I have a full run of West Coast Avengers, and I don't even think I've read the first issue. Maybe the first issue, and that was it. I have so much to read. <laughs> Yeah, that and the John Byrne run near the end of that title are the ones that really play into this. Hmm. Possibly the Vision and Scarlet Witch miniseries as well. I think there was a four issue and a 12 issue. I know I have the four issue. I don't think I have the 12 issue. In any event, as listeners can probably tell, there's not a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that happens, but in the end we find out, yeah, it was all just Scarlet Witch going nuts and messing with you. And none of these villains were real. So when we boil down to the key plot points and what goes forward, we've already covered it. So much of this is just resetting the status quo in a very dramatic way to reboot the Avengers franchise. Because at the time, it was, well, I hesitate to say struggling, but it was certainly not one of Marvel's top-selling titles. If you go back to the Diamond Top 100 distribution list from 10 years ago, or I guess 11 years ago now, when these were just coming out, and look at what the Avengers numbers were selling like before Bendis stepped in, compared to what they're selling like today and where they rank on that Top 100, there's a dramatic difference. They've gone from the bottom half of the top 100, you know, and then post-movies, they were consistently top 10, if not top 5. And as far as franchises for Marvel, I mean, you do have your Spider-Man, but as far as teams, it was always X-Men for so long. And Bendis was the one that finally, he, he made that the top. And then now we see the movies and everything else and all that's kind of sprung from. Yeah, that was a lot of the, the rise to prominence and some of that is tying into the movies. I mean... Iron Man's books have clearly benefited from the movies and starting it up. Had you told me 15 years ago, had you told me when I was buying these issues that Iron Man would be a household name? Absolutely. <laughs> I, I don't think I would have believed you. you know, at, at the time, the Marvel characters that were household names, I would say were Spider-Man and Hulk. And that's mostly because of their TV series. Mm -hmm. But now, I mean, it was at the point when they relaunched the Ultimate line with the new continuity they were afraid to call it Ultimate Avengers because they thought people would just immediately think of the Uma Thurman Ray Fine movie that didn't do so well, <laughs> based on the British spy series from the 1960s. 
That's why they called it the Ultimates. And now people hear Avengers and the British fans of the old series have to fight to remind people, no, no, there's another one out there. It's not just the superheroes. So the world has changed and this was a big part of where that started. I mean, we've already had two Hawkeye ongoings. I mean, in a year, kids are going to be running around for Halloween as the vision. Like, let that sink in a little bit. I just, I never, I never would have dreamed that this would be a reality. We've got people debating over which movie version of Quicksilver is the better one. (laughs) So, yeah, this is where all of that started. Now, one of the things that we do like to talk about in these podcasts is that any deeper meanings, if it has any. So morals, meanings, messages, essentially the bit that they do consistently on Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast that I have shamelessly stolen from them. Great podcast. Check it out. Yeah. Highly recommended. Even if you don't think you like Star Trek, just give it a listen because the conversations are that good. But yeah, in this one, the only message I can really see here is, you know, about the importance of honesty and the value in that. Because all of this came about when the Avengers as a group decided to lie to their friend and tinker with her memories to make that possible, right? If they'd let her deal with the loss of her kids properly, uh, this may not have happened. I would definitely say that. I would throw in a just forgiveness. There's a lot of blame being thrown around, and I think even at one point, Miss Marvel is going on about how there's no way she could ever forgive Wanda for this. And Quicksilver said, well, she would forgive you. Mm-hmm. And it's because of them not being honest, and it's, I mean, it's their fault she's in the predicament she's in, and then they want to blame her for when it backfires. Yeah, it is a, a lot of this is the group dynamic, and it's basically... They made mistakes in the past, and they came back to bite them hard. But yeah, even then, no one wanted to take responsibility for it. No. And that's, I mean, that's part of it. I like to to see the heroes, and none of them really seem to be dealing with that implication in this. That's part of what rubbed me the wrong way about it. I kept going with it because the, the new Avengers lineup seemed interesting to me. But I, you know, I started this to follow Bendis over from his other books, and I'd already pre-ordered the first few issues of The Raft which is the first story arc in New Avengers, by the time this wrapped up, and I was going to give Bendis one story arc to win me over, and he did. So as I said, New Avengers number one is a much better starting point. Absolutely. Yeah, there's so much that they didn't deal with. I was, as I said, I used to collect the various X books. I mean, I was one of the people who purchased one of the 8 million copies of X-Men number one by (laughs) Claremont and Lee when it came out, specifically the cover with Cyclops and Wolverine on it. That's the one I tracked down. (laughs) So when Magneto shows up to say, well, I'm taking her and see you and there's no resistance. I remember reading, what? 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 You know, I wasn't aware of anything that would change Magneto from the villain status that he was being reset to the last time I read him. Mm-hmm. So I characters I didn't have particular attachment to getting thrashed and killed by one of their own based on their past mistakes and the one who's responsible for it all, at least in terms of the actions is taken away by one of the Marvel Universe's major villains, and they just let him take her. And even that's them deal- like not wanting to deal with it. They're just like, oh, you want her? Okay, go for it. <laughs> you can have her. We're done. Yeah. Yeah, so as you might have guessed when we're moving past this, knowing why we think it landed at this point in the countdown, this is one of the few stories where I read it, and I'm surprised it's here. It's It, it was important in terms of what it ushered in, But if you were to say, you know, pick the story arc that does that, I probably would have gone with the first arc of New Avengers rather than this one. It's the way I think about it is as far as placement, I would definitely put it on the the higher end 
as a story, it's it's lacking. But if you ask me what is the worst what is the worst thing that ever happened to the Avengers, this would be the story I would point to. Are there better Avenger stories? Absolutely. But as far as like most destructive, what is you know, the worst point in Avengers history, I would definitely have to point to this. And I think that kind of earns it at least some spot. Yeah. Yeah, that that is true. I mean, the only other thing I've heard of where the Avengers really take a beating is one I haven't read yet, but it shows up at number 18. That's Avengers Under Siege, 270 to 277. And that's the mansion, I believe? I believe so. I haven't read it yet, but I I believe that's where the Masters of Evil basically invade the mansion. Jarvis's favorite memory of all, (laughs) even though he took a beating. Yeah, and that is, I mean, part of what kept me through this is that Bendis did seem to have a few good moments with the characters. And one of the things I liked was when Amenek was being a bit disrespectful for Jarvis. Calling him Pappy. Yeah. And Cap was right there saying, you will show this man respect. You will speak to him as though you are speaking to me. I loved that. Yeah, that is probably my favorite moment in this entire story arc. Is where Cap steps forward and says, no, as far as I'm concerned, Jarvis is an Avenger. You will treat him as such. And and I thought the, the Avengers finale, the last couple of pages when you actually see... The citizens showing support. I thought that was a nice touch. That was a nice little send off at the very end. That even after all everything that's happened, citizens still love them. They're behind them. Yeah. To me, that that said a lot the first time. But as we read all the Fallout and the other stories and House of M and Astonishing X Men, everything that came after it, when we find out that the general public had no idea Scarlet Witch was behind it all, that I think undermines that moment a bit. As far as as far as the general public is concerned. They really were assaulted by Ultron and the Kree and, 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 (laughs) with all of this at once, when in fact, it was one of their own who did it. And that is something that's been addressed a couple of times in later stories, not just House of M, but also Avengers Children's Crusade, which was sort of another follow-up to the, the Heinberg and Chung Young Avengers title. So Matt, did you have any other thoughts or... Uh, I think that's about it. There's not a lot of there's not a lot of meat to the story, so it's hard to talk about. <laughs> it does make it difficult at times, but I, I think we covered everything. Yeah, I mean, this is one. We said there's three elements that can land things on here: continuity, significance, entertaining story, and the deeper meanings. The meaning itself in this one, the message, I don't think shares the hero or puts a positive light on the heroes. So I think that it's here because you know sometimes you just like the flash and bang. This is like. This is like Michael Bay directing the Avengers rather than Joss Whedon. Absolutely. I didn't want to bring up that name, but yes, absolutely. And that's what the story is. If that's, you know, if you're one of the people who loves the new Transformers movies, this is probably the Avengers story for you. And you know, otherwise, it, I think it landed on the list. As you said, it's just, this is a unique moment in their history. And I think it's recognition of that uniqueness. Yes. I'd probably put it here. So anyway, Matt, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. And for those of you who are reading along at home, you can join us again next week when we discuss Thor God of Thunder issues 1 through 11. So this is the first part of the Jason Aaron run on Thor, which has been collected in both trade paperback and hardcover, and can also be found on Comixology and Marvel Digital Unlimited. Please feel free to rate the show on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from. Share the link with friends if you think you know people who would enjoy it. And you can always check out the Facebook discussion group that talks about the issues or these episodes as they come out. And thank you for listening. 
Comic books aren't for kids anymore. We've heard the refrain for years in mainstream media, but 30 seconds at the end of a newscast or two paragraphs in a magazine can't provide the behind-the-scenes information or entertainment like one episode of Word Balloon. Welcome to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. This is John Suntress. Word Balloon is a one-on-one interview program featuring pop culture conversations with storytellers. People who don't read today's comic books may think the medium is still being written for nine-year-olds, but as film, television, and video game producers can tell you, they couldn't be more wrong. These writers and artists are just as entertaining talking about their process as they are producing the stories they make. Listen to a sample episode and discover why Word Balloon leads the way in pop culture entertainment coverage.